0: Live from the Merck Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you to download our app and listen to us anywhere in the world in real time. But only by downloading the app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get uh, the podcast and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today. In our second hour, have you been following the most recent Clarence Thomas drama? Gallivanting around the world on a super yacht and private jet owned and paid for by conservative billionaire mega donor Harlan Crow, receiving all kinds of uh, gifts and favors. So, is Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas a corrupt? Plutocrat-backed, ruling-class elite, Jacobin columnist Ben Burgess thinks so, and he'll join us today to talk about all the Clarence Thomas drama that you may or may not be aware of in Hour 2. In our third hour, what's it really like when you're feeling the strain of trying to educate students while adhering to to obstructive and sometimes destructive parameters like banning uh, certain books and topics in the classroom. A conversation in our three with writer, media personality, and school principal Dr. Shanessa Finner on what's hindering educators most in the classroom in this current climate uh, of politics. Uh, But in this first hour today, uh, on Monday, the Nashville Metropolitan Council voted to return Justin Jones, To the state legislature after he was expelled, of course, last week by Republicans for protesting gun violence on the House floor. Though his return was celebrated by many, the removal of Representative Jones and Representative Justin Pearson, who was on this program uh, days ago, uh, on this station days ago, uh, their removal underscores the troubling reality that some Republicans seem more concerned by protest than gun violence and that these kinds of, uh, shall we call them, toxic reactions are fraught With racial symbolism and dog whistles, Bloomberg opinion columnist Francis Wilkinson joins us now for a conversation about all that and then some, I suspect. Francis, good to have you back. How are you today, sir?
1: I'm good, Tavis. Nice to be with you.
0: Nice to have you on, man. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. Let me ask a a, a big question, a broad question, and we'll uh, we'll narrow our way, Francis, as we move through this hour. Um, I've not had a chance to ask you this, although I've talked to many others. Um, uh, your take, broadly speaking, on what you saw happen uh, in that Tennessee assembly.
1: Well, you know, my my. Comprehension of it was that it was an overt act. Mm -hmm. You know, you talked about dog whistles uh, uh, just a minute ago there. This was not a dog whistle. Mm -hmm. Um, This was a very explicit act expelling two young black lawmakers um, who had the temerity to protest a the inaction of the legislature in the face of another gun massacre. Uh, and as you also know, this harkens back to days of Reconstruction when black lawmakers were ejected from legislatures uh, because the federal government could no longer protect black rights, basically, uh, or refused to protect black rights at that point. So to me, this was not so much a dog whistle as an overt act of, hey, we, we are white conservatives asserting our power. We know that this wave, this generational and multiracial wave is upon us, and we are fighting back against it
0: yeah. um you said something now, Francis, as you often do in your writings uh that that make us think uh and that uh, allow us to to have a conversation about reframing the current moment. I say all the time, quoting one of my regular contributors, Connie rice, a uh, brilliant lawyer here in los angeles um she always uh you know always uh Uh, encourages us to make sure when we're having these conversations that our frame is correct. And you've just offered a historical frame that not many people have talked about. We're talking about the present moment in Tennessee, but most, to your point, are unaware, I think, of the historic framing of this vis-a-vis reconstruction and those black leaders back then who were forced out of various positions, uh, as you sort of detail. I I, I guess my question is, um, do, do you think that most of us um, might see this differently? Yeah, that's the question. Would we see it differently if we understood historically that this ain't the first time this has happened to black legislators?
1: Well, no, it's not the first time. Uh, and and I think of uh, a man named Tunis Campbell, who was mm-hmm. the highest ranking uh, black man in the Georgia legislature, who was basically just pushed out of his seat in, uh, I think, 1871 uh, because at that time, white conservatives, who were Democrats in those days, mm-hmm. were reasserting their control over politics, over the economy, over society in the former slave states. Um, the, the, the coincidence of this with guns, uh, I think, is also uh, worthy of attention, because obviously at the same time that they were kicking uh, black legislators out of power, kicking black uh, local Politicians out of power and others, they were also making sure that um, there was free reign for armed white terrorism mm-hmm. uh, to reduce black power in other ways. So I think the fact that this episode happened over a contest over guns, um, if you take it a step back, the expulsion was over a protest and the protest was over in action on gun regulation uh i think that link between guns and white power is a pretty powerful one as well
0: mm, it is powerful and we'll talk about that as we move to this hour uh, that that uh combination if you will that conjoining of uh, of uh guns uh and white power white supremacist power we will talk about that we'll talk about uh, this gun culture that continues to be uh, uh wrapped and warped right. Uh, by racial aggression, um, we will uh, talk about uh, how brazen. Uh, Francis puts his finger on it quite nicely. Uh, the overt act that this was, uh, he, he he challenged me correctly. That this this was not a dog whistle, Tavis. This was overt. It was brazen, and I want to get his take on on what he makes of the fact that it was, in fact, so overt, so brazen, so unapologetic on the part of Republicans. Uh, in a moment such as this. A great deal to unpack in this hour uh, with Bloomberg opinion columnist Francis Wilkinson, who you're listening to right now on KBLA Talk 15. Interrogating your assumptions your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. eighty eighty. Let's get back to Francis Wilkinson, uh, Bloomberg Opinion columnist uh, here on KBLA Talk fifteen eighty. Uh, in today's first hour, and we're delighted to have him. Um, you 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 uh, you put your finger on this early earlier, Francis. And I want to come right to it now, and that is nobody surprised by this, I guess. On, on the one hand, but it was so overt, um, so brazen. You uh, beautifully uh, situated this for us historically. Uh, back to the 1800s when they were doing this to black uh, legislators uh, in the era of uh, of Reconstruction. Um, but what did you make of the brazen nature of this? They did this unapologetically, not not under the cover of darkness, but in daylight.
1: Yes, it was something, wasn't
0: it? Yeah. Um,
1: well, he, here's here's what I think, and I'm, you know, that, that's the key question. It's not the key question, but it's certainly an interesting question you've raised, and I'm not sure I have an interesting answer for it, but <laughs> let me give it a try. Sure. Um, we are in a period now of reaction, right, where where we're seeing these states uh, where conservative whites are in power, and they are able to exert control over, for instance, a place like Nashville and, and Memphis, which do not necessarily want those laws those uh, cultural mores thrust down you know their throats so mm-hmm. what what i think we're seeing is in a lot of these places there's a reaction against black power against multiracial democracy and i think where they are feeling insulated from that to some degree at least in terms of the the legality and Tennessee is a a state with conservative representation, right? They've Mm -hmm. got a conservative Republican governor, they've got a conservative legislature. I think they felt that they could uh, sort of make an example of these two legislators and show that the wave of black power, the wave of multiracial democracy was going to stop at the door of the legislature. And I think they found out that that is not the case, uh, because if you look at the consequences, uh, they have been humiliated, really, nationwide. And we already, of course, have one of the black lawmakers is back in, in the uh, legislature already, mm-hmm. and presumably the other one will be as well. So there was, they lost on a practical level in that it's not going to remove these two, two men, And they lost on a political and symbolic level because it was there was almost no way to describe the actions except in terms of racism and racial aggression and reaction. Mm.
0: Speaking of racial aggression and reaction, we'll get to, again, the conversation more broadly in a moment about this gun culture uh, wrapped in all of that, steeped in all of that. Uh, But since you mentioned multiracial democracy, what does this incident say to you uh about that uh i was going to call it impending reality it is because we know we're just years away from being a majority minority country but it's not even that deep for me what's to say in real time uh, about our effort to establish uh, to extend a multi-racial democracy
1: well i think it's another reminder that there is a large part of this country that does not want a multiracial democracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have seen that with the MAGA movement behind Trump. Uh, We see it in Trump's rhetoric continually. We see it in the kind of rhetoric you hear on Fox News, you know, the invasion, the the great replacement of white people in the United States by uh, brown and black people. So, there is a large cohort of America that does not want that and is actively pushing back against that. And I think that's what we saw the Republicans in the Tennessee legislature do. Um, I think, to me at least, you know, I'd be interested to to hear your take on this, but to me at least, it means we still have a big contest ahead. Yeah. And that this is going to be a very. a fierce battle for some time, and just because we are demographically heading toward that moment where it will no longer be a white majority, we are not going to get to that multiracial democracy without a lot of work.
0: Yeah, um, to your to your kind invitation uh, to to uh, for me to chime in with my view on this. Uh, not a whole lot to say. My view is not much different than yours. I think it portends something very ugly. Uh, very nasty uh, and vitriolic um, for our future. This is not going to come easy. Uh, We will not go into that good night uh, gently, uh, to to borrow a phrase. Um, We had a guest on our program yesterday, Francis, who has a book out, and the subtitle of the book essentially uh, is about uh, a, a, a slow civil war that we are witnessing right now the rollout of a very, very slow civil war. Uh, When I first saw the book and and invited you out on the program, you know, I I did so because I obviously wanted to unpack what he had to say. Um, But I thought, you know, on some level, when I first read it, maybe that's a bit hyperbolic that we are maybe maybe you're doing maybe you're doing a little too much there calling this present moment uh, a rollout of a very slow Civil War and when I got done with that conversation for an hour yesterday I think I was convinced that what we're enduring right now uh-huh. may be the early stages of a very slow rollout of an impending Civil War, um, you didn't hear that conversation, but your thoughts just on that notion is it is it that serious?
1: Well, I don't know. I I'm I'm wary of that as you are mm-hmm. Uh, now I haven't read Jeff Charlotte's book yet. Which yeah, is the one you're referring to. Yeah,
0: right? you know the name. You know um, the name. Yeah
1: Yeah, but um, it's obviously a political war at this point. Now, there's a huge difference between a political war and an actual fighting war, Mm -hmm. uh, which we've had in this country. So um, I think that it is a fraught time. I think we we are going to have some instances of violence. I will tell you that one of the things that... I take a little bit of comfort in Mm -hmm. is if you look at the people who are angriest and most reactionary in, in this contest, in this political contest, they are people who tend to be older. Um, So the, the base for instance of, of Trump's MAGA movement is older Mm -hmm. and throughout history, it's very hard to find examples of movements comprised of older people mm-hmm. uh, that are really getting into serious, you know, guerrilla warfare and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, that's that's sort of a young person's game, revolution. And so, you know, while obviously there are, there are clear calls to violence on the right. And there are obviously some people who are responding to that. And we saw that on January 6th and we've seen it elsewhere. Um, I think on the whole, the fact that it's in a movement, you know, the base of it, the fact that the base of it is older people, I think, is a good thing.
0: Yeah. You know, you know, it's funny, I hadn't thought about that. That's why I love talking to you, Francis Wilkinson, uh, Bloomberg Opinion Commons, our guest right now. Um, you always make me think about things I hadn't considered uh, prior to. Hadn't thought about that. Um, and I think one, of the, one, one, of the, one piece of evidence that I would submit, not that you need my help in making your argument, but one of the pieces of evidence I would submit as Exhibit A, perhaps, uh, to, uh, to uh, bolster your point, is that all these rallies and protests that Trump has called for around his indictment have not materialized. Uh, and I think some of that has That's to do with an f-
1: excellent point. Yeah,
0: I think some of that has to do with the fact that you're right that it's an older audience, uh, an older following, and they're not interested in you know necessarily. Uh, they prefer Trump over, over Biden, but they ain't trying to take to the streets about that. Number one, number two, uh, I would offer as Exhibit uh, Exhibit B uh, that they have watched um, the Department of Justice, although slow to my mind to start this rollout. Speaking of rollouts, they were slow, but a lot of folk had been arrested and indicted, and some jailed. Uh, given their behavior uh-huh. and activity on January sixth at the Capitol, so that also is a, uh, is a deterrent uh, for some people to to act a fool. Um, but I think your 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 point, though, overall is is a good one. Again, hadn't thought about it in those in that regard. But as you were talking, I'm thinking historically about all the movements, and to my mind, there is no movement for social progress in this country, or frankly anywhere in the world. To your brilliant point, that did not have at its apex at its crescendo have the engagement and the involvement of young people. That is true for the civil rights movement. It is true uh, in Soweto, South Africa. It is true in Tiananmen Square in China. I could do this all day long. Um, Again, making your point uh, alongside you, that all these movements um, for any sort of real social uh, momentum have always had young folk, the Black Lives Matter movement in real time, Um, Young people at the epicenter of these struggles. And so I I think you're right. Maybe I will take some solace in that uh, because I hadn't thought about it until you until you teed it up. But but it it still leads me to another question, which is while we might not be in the streets fighting as we were in the the Civil War. Uh, but to your point about these political wars, and on some level, America's always engaged. We're perennially engaged in perennial wars. I mean, political wars. You got Republicans, Democrats. We're always fighting about something, but this one has a different feel, a different frame, and I'm wondering in the coming years what you think this kind of political war that we see coming, uh, as Charlotte put it, a slow civil war, what's that ultimately going to do for or to our democracy, you think? Uh, Well, I think they're...
1: they're two obvious divergent options here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one is that the reaction will succeed, mm-hmm. uh, at least for a time. And there will be the kind of uh, repression of voting rights, uh, repression of women's rights, repression of, of various minorities' rights uh, in states where that is feasible and even federally, when it's, when that's possible. Uh, so that's the dark version of this, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that there is enough of a vicious reaction and it's sufficiently organized that they can really not only hold back the change that's coming, but roll back rights that have already been gained. And we're looking at that right now, right? With abortion rights and voting rights and, uh, and, uh, gay, lesbian, trans, et cetera. So, Mm uh, you know, when they're, when they're banning books, you know that you're, you're in a very bad period. Now, to me, there's also a much more hopeful, uh, path and that entails exactly what you were just talking about, which is young people, mm-hmm. um, you know, Black Lives Matter, Soweto, whatever you call, you know, the civil rights movement, it's always young people. Mm-hmm. If young people recognize the stakes of this and get involved, I think we have a very different outcome, and it's much sooner than this long, simmering civil war that you're talking about. Because... You know, even looking at Tennessee, which is hardly known as a bastion of uh, liberal politics and (laughs) progressivity, um, those kids came out. This started with a bunch of kids. Yeah. So, and they didn't back down either. So they have now been engaged. And in this political battle that they got engaged in, backing these two black legislators, they won. Mm Mm-hmm. So what does that tell them? That, that if they get out, if they organize, if they raise their voices, they can win. That's a very important lesson to learn.
0: Nope, It is. I'm glad you, um, you pointed that out for us. I'm looking at my clock here. I've got news, traffic, and sports in one minute. Let me tell you where I want to go on the other side of all that business. Um, I, I, am, I am concerned, um, and I, I, I shudder when I think about it, uh, and again, you put your you, you put your finger on it and I want to come right back to it and that is how much more scared we should be uh, about whatever the future portends um, around these issues, uh, namely multiracial democracy when the uh, protagonist <laughs> are aided and abetted by a u.s Supreme Court um, you mentioned voting rights suppression, you mentioned uh, women's reproductive freedom. Uh, And other issues. Uh, But I'm concerned and want to get your temperature on how much uh, uh, how much more scared we ought to be, (laughs) to be frank about it, Um, given that uh, this uh, movement uh, on the right, uh, these uh, white supremacist attacks and beyond are being aided and abetted uh, by a U.S. Supreme Court. Then I want to come right to the piece you've been writing about of late, um, and that is this notion that you again also raised earlier of what it means that this particular protest in Tennessee where these black folk were disrespected and pushed out uh, was wrapped around the notion of guns uh, and racial aggression uh, was wrapped all around that. Um, So a lot to talk about in that regard. Uh, Glad we got thirty more minutes here after news and traffic and sports with our guest Bloomberg Opinion columnist Francis Wilkinson on KBLA Talk 1580. you belong here. We're glad to have you here in this hour uh, today, our first hour. Our guest is Francis Wilkinson. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580 one 800 920 Francis, before news, traffic, and sports, um, based on something you had said um, about uh, a number of issues that this Supreme Court has taken up uh, or certainly will be taken up in other regards, we're waiting on uh, a decision to, frankly, end affirmative action, as we know it, just one of the decisions that we're waiting on uh, from this particular court, uh, but where Uh, This moment that we are in um, is already trouble, to say the least. Um, They have um, a Supreme Court who, with uh, various rulings, continue to aid and abet their efforts. And that makes this slow-rolling civil war, as Jeff Charlotte would put it, uh, all the more difficult to to wrap your brain around. Does it not?
1: Uh, I totally agree. I mean, uh, and it's not just the Supreme Court. It's a lot of... uh, lower courts that are exercising the same kind of expansive authority trying to restrain uh the rights of of women the rights of of minorities uh in order to sort of keep, keep a bulwark against the future um, and one of the ways that i i think that may cause problems for them though so it's, it's you know sometimes power, if you if you abuse it, comes back and bites you, right? And mm-hmm. we saw a little bit of that in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So when when Justice Thomas wrote the Bruin decision, which was a decision that struck down a New York law on gun possession, he said that the ruling was that you had to uh, uh, th- that the law had to be consistent with the way the country was either at the founding around 1791 or what you know what's known as the second founding after the Civil War around 1868. Mm-hmm. And so based on that, the Fifth Circuit Court very recently struck down a federal law saying that domestic abusers cannot have guns uh, or can have their guns removed, because in 1791 and 1868, there was no such thing as a domestic abuser
0: yeah I think we just uh lost <laughs> Francis in the middle of his sentence. uh his phone died We'll uh Miles getting him back on the line right quicker. We can continue our conversation uh while we get him back on the line to finish his point um he just mentioned uh in the last few minutes two names that i want to kind of uh, pull out right quick he mentioned justice clarence thomas that was the story he was telling just now when his phone died um justice thomas uh, is the topic of our second hour today uh, in case you've just tuned in in our second hour uh, in case you've not been following it uh clarence thomas is in hot water once again ProPublica uh, pro publica released a story uh, a few days ago uh about a guy named uh uh, Harlan Crow. Uh, many of us know Harlan Crowe from his politics, but uh, Harlan Crowe is a dear friend of Clarence Thomas. It turns out Clarence Thomas has been gallivanting around the world on a super yacht and private jet and receiving all kinds of gifts and favors uh, from his billionaire friend Harlan Crow. Uh, and um, one has to ask what does uh, that relationship, given who Harlan Crow is, have on the decisions Clarence Thomas has been making uh, and continues to make as a member of the Supreme Court It's an ugly story. Uh, Their ProPublica broke a big exclusive about all the uh, the uh, the gifts and and, and travel and other things that Clarence Thomas has received from Harlan Crow. Um, There was a Supreme Court justice in 1969 who was forced to resign over far less stuff. Um, And so there are those who think this may be the moment uh, that Clarence Thomas may be uh, uh, forced to have a reckoning about his future on the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll talk about that in Hour 2. Francis also mentioned uh, banning books. We'll talk in Hour 3 with a high school principal about what it's like when you're trying to educate students against a backdrop of of, uh, obstructionist and sometimes destructionist uh, rulings uh, that make it difficult uh, to teach children in classrooms. So uh, since Francis mentioned banning books, that's Hour 3 with a principal. Fascinating conversation. I think I look forward to it. And since you mentioned Clarence Thomas, the subject of our two today. Now we have Francis back in this hour, uh, who was making a point about Clarence Thomas when his phone died. Uh, Francis, finish your point about Clarence Thomas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, sorry about that. That's all right. It happens, man. It uh, happens live well, radio. Yeah. My, my, my point. My point is that that Thomas issued a ruling that is going to have ramifications that 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 make life difficult for for conservatives on the court, because the logical implication of his ruling was that domestic abusers cannot have their guns taken away. Now, we know that domestic abusers are far more likely to murder their uh, spouses. Mm -hmm. We know that domestic abusers are a disproportionate component of mass killers. And so it's an obviously... Common-sensical thing that domestic abusers should be prohibited from having a gun, and yet, by the logic of his ruling, as the Fifth Circuit has just ruled, uh, you, you can't take a gun away from someone because no one took no one took guns away from domestic abusers in 1791 or in 1868. Mm-hmm. So, when they go too far, as they did in this ruling. Um, and I think, as they did in the legislature in Tennessee this month, you see that it creates more problems for them, even though it creates problems for us as well uh, in the long run it 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 does create the basis to say, we question your credibility because this ruling is you know categorically nuts, or mm-hmm. we question your credibility because you 're showing naked aggression in this uh, move to to uh, throw out these two black lawmakers. And, you know, at some point, this is a pretty complex society, and credibility still matters in terms of governing and managing the society. And they've been doing a pretty serious damage job on their own credibility over the last few years. And I think... You know, Chief Justice John Roberts and others are concerned about that, as they should be, mm-hmm. because the courts, in particular, cannot really function without some level of credibility.
0: Yeah. Um, let me pivot uh, ever so gently, since you uh, again set me up for this so nicely, to talk specifically about. Again, uh, you you were talking a moment ago about some of your uh, some of your uh, uh, writings of late, but I want to come now to this uh, specific conversation. Um, that you uh, are encouraging us to have about what it means when we consider that gun culture um, was at the center of what happened in Tennessee, uh, and that was warped by and wrapped in, of course, racial aggression. But just unpack what it means um, for us to consider that guns and race were connected in this Tennessee brouhaha.
1: Well, I think it's because guns and race have been connected in American life for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, in the early days of the Republic, uh, guns were something that were seen as a way to keep down slave rebellions. They were seen as a way for, for whites to keep black people, even free black people, in line. Uh, and not exercising rights that uh, the whites did not want them to have. Uh, after Reconstruction, uh, white terrorists, the Ku Klux Klan and others, used guns to murder blacks trying to vote, uh, murder blacks who had voted the wrong way, uh, and you know, terrorize blacks who were, you know, being too successful in business or, Mm. you know, whatever the cause of the white reaction was, uh, guns were part of that and disarming blacks was was a part of that. So guns have been part of racial politics from the very beginning of this country, and they still are part of racial politics. Uh, If you Listen to the rhetoric of the National Rifle association it 's all about fear, and underlying that really is fear of black crime, black people. Uh, Donald Trump has done that extensively he 's talked about uh, black neighborhoods being so dangerous that you can 't buy a loaf of bread without being shot yeah. uh, so this This creation of fear which is also what drives gun sales because hunting has been in decline for many decades in the United States gun sales are really about fear so if you want to market guns you market fear mm. and if you want to increase you know white white reaction and get whites worried about crime and worried about things that that tends to move them toward the conservative political choices you use fear. Uh this is all very well established. So guns have been intertwined with American politics and American racial politics in particular as long as this country has existed.
0: That's why I love reading Francis Wilkinson's work in uh uh Bloomberg. Uh he's a Bloomberg opinion columnist because he always makes it so simple. <laughs> just he just he just brings it straight home. You, you heard that line, right? And he's right. It, it's a it's a data point but he says it's so so uh uh, so forthrightly that hunting is down, and yet gun sales are up. Think about that. The sport of hunting in this country has been decreasing for years. So we're we're not using these weapons to, to go hunting. Uh, then again, as I think about it, they are hunting. They just they just hunting for black folk as opposed to to, to beaver or bear or antelope, whatever they hunt for. They they just they they're, they're hunting black folk. Uh, but hunting is down uh, in this country. Gun sales uh, remain. Uh, up and and rising steadily, uh, and to his point, you want to sell guns, you 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 sell fear. You don't sell uh, hunting season. You sell fear. Um, it's a powerful point. Francis Wilkinson, I get Francis Wilkinson uh, is our guest in this hour. Bloomberg opinion columnist. More to talk uh, with Francis about when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, Bloomberg, uh, Francis, I'm, I'm I'm wondering whether or not you think this course correction uh that uh i was going to say that 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 the tennessee assembly is undertaking they're not undertaking it's being forced on them um as i said the nashville metropolitan council has uh, has voted to return justin jones to the state legislature as you said we expect the same will happen uh here momentarily for justin pearson so just both justins will be back in the tennessee state assembly uh before too long i'm wondering whether or not you think the embarrassing loss as you put it that Republicans suffered in Tennessee, this course correction, as it were, will mean anything? I don't want to color the question much more than that. Does it mean anything going forward?
1: Uh, I think we've already got an answer to that, uh, in that uh, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee has uh, called for a red flag law in the state, Mm. uh, which is a law to remove guns from people who are dangerous either to themselves or to others. Uh, That was not on the table before. Mm-hmm. Uh so you know I I think we've seen young people in Tennessee which is not a a state again that is you know particularly amenable to progressive young people we've seen them win this fight to to you know reinstall at least one of these legislators so far and the repercussions of that are that they're already seeing some limited but significant action on trying to constrain gun violence so the lesson that they have learned from raising their voices is hey this kind of works mm-hmm. so yes i i think you know i think there are repercussions already being felt in tennessee and i think they were nationwide as well because it was a national story mm-hmm. and for republicans one thing that it did was add another piece of information, another piece of evidence that they are not on the side of the young people in this country who want to see changes.
0: Yeah. Uh, we were talking earlier about the Civil War, and we will, we will see in the coming years, I suspect, whether Jeff Charlotte is right, that we are at the uh, at the beginning, the early stages of a slow Civil War rollout. But you can't talk about the Civil War, obviously, without talking about the North and the South and it seems to me that we are having far too many conversations about out-of-control politicians in the South, be it Florida, be it Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, um, uh, all across South North Carolina, all across the South, South Carolina. The comments of Nikki Haley of late and others, um, all across the South, um, we're we're keeping watch, as it were, uh, and track a variety of a variety of political issues. Let me just ask how closely you're watching the South?
1: Well, (laughs) I'm interested in American politics. And if you're interested in American politics, you have to watch the South very closely. Yeah. uh, Because that's the lever of conservative politics in the United States. And you may have conservatives in California, which you do. You have millions. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have them in Montana. You have them wherever. But, The sort of ideological and cultural home of both the Republican Party and American conservatism is the South, and it has been for a very, very long time.
0: Our remaining moments with Francis Wilkinson when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Francis, your your point earlier, notwithstanding that the the governor of Tennessee uh, has been moved by all of this, uh, one could argue, uh, to uh, propose a red flag law in the state of Tennessee, to take guns away from persons who are a danger to themselves and potentially others. So I hear your point that uh, maybe uh, what happened in Tennessee uh, vis-a-vis these two black legislators who were expelled, one now returned, the other soon to be, I suspect. I hear your point that maybe something good has come of this. On the other hand, I wonder to what extent you think the NRA, who you referenced earlier, and other gun uh, enthusiasts uh, in this political battle are celebrating the fact that they were able to focus our attention on the protest to focus our conversation on the explosions rather than guns. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, I, I understand that. I mean, obviously, uh, diversion and distraction are their standard, uh, sort of response to any mass shooting. Exactly. Mass shooting brings home, you know, just how, how dangerous guns are. Um, I I still think, you know, pound for pound, I think the uh black legislators and their allies got the best of this fight.
0: Yeah. Um I think you're right. Um I, I hope you're right. And certainly the return of Justin Pearson to his seat alongside Justin Jones would go a long way to uh to advancing that particular narrative. Um I think you're right. Um uh, but I guess we will know in the coming days. <laughs> Uh, whether you and I are, are on the right side of this uh, we, we, know, we, we know we're on the right side of the issue uh, Whether or not we think we're right uh, About the fact that they got the better of it We shall see For now, we thank uh, Francis Wilkinson uh, Bloomberg Opinion and columnist uh, Covering U.S. politics and policy uh, For joining us in this hour Francis, we'll do it again All the best to you, sir Thank you for your time
1: Thank you, Tavis. It's always a pleasure.
0: Pleasure is always mine. Trust and believe. I thank you for uh, this opportunity over the course of this hour. In our second hour, as I said uh, a little bit earlier, we are going to be joined by Ben Burgess, who is a columnist for for Jacob. And I guess the first two hours today are. Uh, all about columnists. Um, Francis, a columnist with Bloomberg. Ben Burgess, a columnist with uh, Jacobin. But I love talking to columnists. I love uh, uh, hearing their points of view uh, and being able to interrogate uh, how they see the world. So Ben Burgess believes that Clarence Thomas is a corrupt, plutocrat-backed, ruling-class elite. That is the name of the piece uh, that he uh, has recently, recently um written for Jacobin, and it's all about the drama that Clarence Thomas uh, has found himself in, uh, taking free gifts and free travel from this billionaire named Harlan Crowe. If you haven't been following the story, we'll unpack it for you uh, in the next hour uh, and talk about whether or not this is that moment. uh, As we like to say, that part is this, that part Uh, of the story where uh, the tide finally turns against Clarence Thomas. He's now the longest-serving member of the U.S. Supreme Court. But in 1969, a member of the court was forced to resign over something far less. And when you're taking gifts and free trips, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, maybe the time has come for you to no longer sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll talk about it in a moment after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.